0: Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast. My name is George Ray, and I am your regular host. Today, we are bringing you an episode from our partnership with Sidley Austin LLP. This episode is part of the second season of the podcast series entitled The Enforcement Angle. Through the year-long series, our goal is to discuss state and federal enforcement of environmental laws and regulations with senior enforcement officials and thought leaders on environmental enforcement in the United States and globally. The host of the series is Justin Savage, Justin is a partner in Sidley Austin LLP's Washington, D.C. office and the global co-leader of the firm's environmental practice. On today's episode, Justin discusses corporate compliance monitors in environmental enforcement actions with three panel guests, Ike Adams from Sidley Austin and Michelle Edwards and Brad Wilson of StoneTurn, a global advisory firm. Mr. Adams is a partner in Sidley's D.C. office and represents clients in investigations and enforcement actions by the U.S. Department of Justice, or DOJ, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, state attorneys general, and other law enforcement and regulatory authorities. Ms. Edwards is a partner with Stone Turn and has about 25 years of combined experience in fraud and compliance risk management and financial statement auditing. Ms. Edwards has served on senior leadership teams of and led work streams on several compliance monitorships. Mr. Wilson is a managing partner at StoneTurn and has more than 18 years advising companies and their council on complex financial and accounting matters. Mr. Wilson has also served on senior leadership teams of several compliance monitorships.
1: Thanks, Georgia. Ike, Michelle, and Brad, how are you doing today? Great. Doing well. I'm pretty well. We appreciate you joining us to talk about compliance monitorships, a perennial hot topic in DOJ enforcement, particularly in the environmental space over the last five years. Now, for our listeners, the last time we talked about this at a very shishi breakfast meeting at the Hay Adams, we were repeatedly shushed for being too raucous. So hopefully we can recreate that energy here, yes? That's the plan. Awesome. So before we dive in, let's get to know you a little bit and walk through your backgrounds and how you came to be involved in monitorship issues.
2: Sure, I'll start off. This is Ike Adams. I'm a partner at Sidley's Washington DC office. I joined the firm in 2006. I'm a member of the firm's regulatory enforcement group. My practice primarily focuses on defending companies and officers and directors in government investigations, principally before DOJ and SEC, but other regulators as well. And I handle a broad spectrum of issues, but of particular relevance here, I've been involved in a number of environmental enforcement actions. In addition to defending clients before the government, I also conduct internal investigations and I advise companies on the design and implementation of compliance programs. And of relevance to our topic here in representing companies before the DOJ, I often help clients deal with compliance issues and and monitorships. One of the things we'll talk about is in the course of those investigations, we help companies enhance and update their compliance programs to meet DOJ expectations. We look closely at the DOJ guidance on monitorships and advise clients about the likelihood of a monitorship. We advocate for our clients before DOJ. Nobody generally wants a monitorship with no offense to Michelle or Brad. So we often advocate that a monitorship is not necessary in a particular case. And if one is appointed, we help guide our clients through that process, through identifying and selecting the monitor and advising them in the course of the monitorship. So with that, let me kick it over to Michelle.
3: Thank you. I'm Michelle Edwards. I'm a partner in Stonehenge's Chicago office. So I started my career as a financial statement auditor in public accounting. And around the time of Sarbanes-Oxley and all the massive corporate frauds and financial statement scandals that were going on, I began advising companies on designing and implementing anti-fraud programs and compliance programs and controls and helping companies investigate allegations of fraud and misconduct. I joined Stone Turn about eight years ago, and I spent a lot of my time working on compliance monitorships and helping companies remediate their compliance programs after something has gone wrong. Most recently, I was the chief of staff and led the independent compliance monitor and auditor team appointed by the Department of Justice for an automotive manufacturer related to violations of environmental and other laws and regulations. I currently serve on the leadership team supporting the monitoring trustee appointed by DOJ antitrust in his role related to the oversight of compliance with obligations related to the merger of two leading wireless telecommunications service providers. I've also served as a risk assessment subject matter expert to the DOJ appointed independent compliance and ethics monitor of a global investment bank. I previously led the stone turn team serving as forensic advisor to national highway traffic safety administration appointed monitor of a tier one automotive supplier and finally i led two work streams of a new york department of financial services appointed compliance monitor of the largest non-bank mortgage servicer in the united states
4: thanks michelle i'm brad wilson i'm also a stone turn partner i sit in our boston office My background is mostly in forensic accounting, which I've been doing for about 20 years now in that space and doing a lot in the sort of internal investigations and expert witness world. From an investigations perspective, you know, most investigations start with looking for controls weaknesses. That sort of helps you look at the place that you want to focus the time on your investigation, the place where something most likely went wrong. And then at the end of the investigation, you know, frequently, the investigative team is giving some advice to the company or the organization on how to improve those controls where there may have been something went wrong. And that experience sort of looking at internal controls in the context of an investigation and, and making recommendations on how to improve them is really critical in the monitoring world. And so when we look at our monitoring work, really that's sort of just taking that forensic skill set to the next step and sort of helping companies think about how to structure their compliance programs going forward. I've been involved in a number of different monitorships, including one involving, you know, admission certification compliance for a large auto manufacturer. I've worked with a large investment bank and the same mortgage servicer that Michelle mentioned. And so I've had the ability to look at these kinds of engagements from a lot of different
1: perspectives. Yeah, that's terrific, Brad. And I think everyone on this podcast brings a wealth of perspectives and perhaps some different viewpoints. But before we get deeper into this, ike let's just level set a little bit because listeners may not know anything about monitors so just starting with the basics what is a monitor
2: sure so a monitor is an independent third party that is appointed to oversee a company's compliance program following the settlement of a criminal and sometimes civil enforcement actions so most of the time when there is a settlement agreement with the department of justice for example There are compliance undertakings in that agreement that require companies to have a certain level of compliance that's designed to address and reduce the risk of recurrence of the misconduct that's at issue in the settlement. And so the Monitor is an independent party that comes in and serves essentially as an independent validator of the entity's progress in implementing those compliance-related undertakings that are required in the settlement agreement. So the monitor comes in and they look at the design, the implementation of the and the effectiveness of the company's compliance program and the requirements that are set forth in the agreement. And really it's adding an extra layer of oversight. It examines the compliance program in light of the company's risk profile, and the monitor will make recommendations and report back its findings and observations to the government.
1: Just give us a sense, and Brad, Michelle, do you wanna weigh in on this too? What does a monitor do like? And then what's really the illegal authority to have this third party involved?
2: Sure, the monitor really acts almost like an auditor in a sense and performs an audit-like function. As a practical matter, they're gonna collect documents, they're going to interview personnel at the company, they're gonna test transactions to understand what is the risk profile What is the company's existing compliance program? Is that compliance program addressing the risks that were identified in that risk assessment? They're gonna look at whether there's any gaps from that. And then they're gonna also look at to see, is the program effective? Has it actually been implemented or is it really just a paper program? But let me pause there. Brad and Michelle are the ones who do this day in and day out, so they might be able to add a a little bit more on that.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think the comparison to an audit is a good one. There obviously are some differences. One key one that, you know, distinction I would make is the idea of sort of real time versus backwards looking. If you think about your financial statement auditor, they come in early in the year, look at how you accounted for last year. Whereas the monitor tends to be sort of more real time looking at things as they're occurring inside the organization in order to both understand better what's happening and to be able to give more real-time feedback. So that's one, I think there's probably others, but that's one key distinction between an audit and a monitorship in my mind.
3: That's right, and the monitor is oftentimes making recommendations to the company. And hopefully those recommendations are practical and reasonable. And essentially the monitor is then, you know, monitoring the company's progress towards remediating what went wrong and all the varied compliance programs, business processes, and internal controls that are hopefully being bolstered to prevent recurrence of the issues that caused the monitorship to be there in the first place.
1: I and mean, that's fascinating just on a day to day basis to imagine what your jobs must be like when you're supporting monitors, Michelle and Brad. I guess just back to Ike to get a sense of, from a legal perspective, where is the monitor vested with legal authority to do all this?
2: Sure. The concept of the monitorship really comes from the criminal law and the concept of corporate probation following the conviction of a corporation for a crime. So the sentencing guidelines generally require probation for a company that doesn't have in place an effective compliance and ethics program at the time of sentencing. And part of that probation can be the appointment of the probation officer or some court appointed officer to go in and do an examination of the books and records of the corporation. So that's sort of the underpinnings of monitorships. This has gotten applied really through contracts. Oftentimes, these corporate settlements are resolved through a deferred prosecution agreement, a non-prosecution agreement, or a plea agreement on the criminal side. And on the civil side, they're often embedded into a consent decree. And essentially, they get memorialized in this contract or agreement between the company and the Department of Justice or the government, and part of that agreement is to retain a monitor.
1: Thanks, Ike. That's interesting from a legal perspective, but I'm assuming there's some kind of oversight of the monitorship or there's some other structure involved. So at the end of the day, who does the monitor report to?
2: That's an interesting question, and you might get different answers depending on whether you ask the monitor or the company. In practice, I think they report to both the company and to the government at the end of the day, right? They are in point engaged by the company. The company has a role in identifying who the candidate is under the DOJ process. Normally, the company gets to pick three different candidates, and then the department will pick among those three. So the company has a role in selection. The company engages the monitor. It's paying for the monitor. But the monitor definitely has reporting obligations back to the Department of Justice. And we'll, I'm sure, get into this in more detail, but the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco, issued a guidance document, a memo back in September of last year, laying out some of the criteria for the department to exercise oversight regarding monitorships. In that guidance, she indicated that The department should receive regular updates about the monitor and the status of the monitor and any issues that the monitor needs to report if they're being denied access to information, resources to employees in the course of their monitorship, and that prosecutors overseeing the monitorship should regularly receive information about the monitor, understanding what he or she is doing, and that the monitor is focused on the work plan and the scope of the monitorship. And then, of course, the monitor also has an obligation to produce reports that ultimately go to the Department of Justice as well that report on their work and their findings.
1: That's interesting. You know, There are agencies that impose, I think, quasi-monitors. I mean, I think Michelle mentioned NHTSA. EPA has a suspension and debarment office. But just looking at DOJ, what components have imposed monitors at DOJ?
2: Sure. So the criminal division often uses monitorships. So does the environmental and natural resources division. Antitrust imposes monitorships. The civil rights divisions and then various U.S. attorney's offices have as well.
1: In turning to Brad, you know, without getting into specific companies that have been under monitorship, I think it's public that you and other folks at Stone Turn have supported several high profile monitorships. And looking specifically at the environmental space, can you just generally walk us through how monitors assess compliance?
4: Sure, I mean, I think what the monitor will do is look at the entirety of the compliance program from the sort of culture of ethics and integrity and compliance inside the organization, straight down to the sort of most detailed controls around the specific processes that got the company into trouble, where the, the issues arose. And that process to test actually can look across all those things in in different ways. But ultimately, it comes down to making sure that the program is both designed effectively. And then Ike mentioned it's not just a paper program, but it's actually operating and operating effectively as well.
1: And then, Michelle, how do uh, monitors carry out their charge in an area as complex as environmental law?
3: So just as companies should use a risk assessment as a foundational element of their compliance program, Monitors, too, should take a risk-based approach to their work and then carrying out their mandate or charge in areas complex like environmental law. So in order to do that effectively, the monitor team must understand the industry, the legal and regulatory environment, and the company very well. So using a risk-based approach is also often explicitly written into the monitor's mandate within the settlement agreement. So the monitor is not expected to review all business lines, activities, or all markets. And indeed some monitors have been criticized in the past for just this. So using that risk-based approach will really help the monitor deal with that complexity that you were talking about and also focus on the things that really matter. Yeah,
1: and you touched on this, you said team. So I'm assuming monitor is more than a single person, but can you elaborate a little bit on that, Michelle?
3: sure a a single person is typically appointed as the monitor but then the monitor needs to build and be supported by the right team based on the misconduct that occurred and the mandate that's outlined in the settlement agreement as well as relevant to the company's business and industry and so this often includes a multidisciplinary team so when we think about environmental laws and regulations in a violation of environmental laws and regs this of course should include experts in environmental law but it also often includes environmental health and safety auditors, environmental risk management experts, and potentially individuals that have served in an in-house role at a company in the past that were previously responsible for environmental management systems and operations. So stepping back, in any monitorship, an effective monitor team should include a diverse and integrated team of experts. So we touched on relevant industry and subject matter experts. We touched on legal and compliance experts, forensic accountants and auditing experts are critical to help understand how to effectively test internal controls and transactions. Data analytics resources are oftentimes helpful, team members that have the relevant language skills, local resources if the monitorship is, for example, overseas, and then also project management expertise.
1: That seems to cover a lot of areas. How do monitors interact with companies in a way that is effective in promoting compliance, but still, given the cast you've got there, allows them to continue to operate.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that the key answer there, like most things in life, is to be sort of as transparent and communicative as possible on what's going on. Many of the legal agreements that lead to the monitorships require that the monitor puts together a work plan, making sure that that work plan is clear, that everyone understands what's in it and what's gonna be done. And it's thoughtful upfront about what the monitor needs to do in order to meet his or her mandate is important. And one of the things you wanna make sure is in that work plan is what are the criteria that the monitor is gonna to use to judge the effectiveness of the program or in some DOJ monitorships at the end of the day to certify whether or not the program is effective. And, you know, One of the worst things that can happen is you have this large team that we're doing a lot of work and at the end of the day, the company and the monitor have a disagreement on what an effective program looks like. Sort of clearing that up upfront as part of the work plan process or very early in the project makes a lot of sense in order to make the whole thing easier and make sure the whole team plus the company are working towards the same you know sort of direction. Another thing just to make the process easier is to communicate findings and recommendations mm-hmm. in as real time a basis as possible right? The agreement will have a requirement that the monitor issue reports. If you wait till you issue the report to communicate the findings and recommendations, it doesn't give the monitor the ability to sort of test the accuracy of their findings, right? The company might know something that the monitor hasn't been aware of. So, you know, talking about it along the way helps them identify those gaps in information. It also lets the company respond faster, right? So that they're not, waiting six months to identify an issue, and then they can start implementing the recommendation they can work on a sort of parallel basis, which means by the time the report's written, sometimes a lot of the work has already been done to remediate the issues that the monitor found.
3: Yeah, Brad, there's a few other things that I'd like to touch on. These engagements are oftentimes several years in term. And so when you think about the structure that's required in the project management expertise that we talked about that is critical to both the team and the company, companies really need to think about and develop a project management office themselves depending on the scope of the monitorship because that oftentimes helps them minimize disruption to the business on a day-to-day basis and can oftentimes allow for a less painful, more streamlined monitorship Project management offices can serve various roles. Thinking back to some experiences that we've had, they've helped us extensively because they almost act as a tour guide to us to get to know the company, to manage the processing of the different information and document and meeting requests that we have. When we liaise with business leaders, they help coordinate that. They also help identify at the company who's going to be accountable and responsible across these areas that the company has to dedicate, oftentimes, significant time to remediate. They also help with things like coordinating on site visits. And as Brad mentioned, the concept of socializing the findings and the recommendations before the report gets issued is critical. And so, coordinating the company's response to that initial draft is key often. From a tone perspective, One challenge that we've seen as well is that a company or the monitor team doesn't really transition from that stage of, in that mindset of litigation or investigation of the enforcement phase. So treating the monitor like an adversary or the monitor treating the company like an adversary or an investigation subject or witness is not effective. So it's really best for both the company and the monitor team to work together to accomplish the objectives at hand, and it really is a shared goal. It's a shared goal between the company, the monitor, and the regulator that's involved.
1: That's helpful to understand that perspective and maybe broadening the lens a bit, getting outside of the scope of this podcast, but at least interesting to me, what are the similarities and differences that you see between monitors in an environmental case versus those are in securities or another area of law that you might support?
3: So regardless of the specific violation that we've seen at issue, in most cases when a monitor is imposed, we typically see that part of the scope of the monitorship and the monitors mandate includes assessing the company's overall ethics and compliance program. And then depending on the specific laws and regulations that were violated, there are supplemental areas that are in scope and included in the monitors mandate. So in a typical corporate criminal environmental crime prosecution, A company has failed to comply with a regulation involving the Clean Air Act, for example, or the Clean Water Act, or some other environmental regulations, such as those related to handling, transportation, storage and disposal of waste, or destruction of a natural resource. However, these environmental crimes are often accompanied by other behavior that implicates that broader ethics and compliance program, such as failing to report those violations, document destruction, or making false representations. So as I discussed, there's different governmental agencies that govern environmental laws and regulations. And so the monitorships can be imposed by civil or administrative environment enforcement processes. In the environmental crimes context, companies often have to make highly technical changes to complex processes that govern compliance with environmental laws to remediate the misconduct that occurred. So oftentimes, in addition to the monitor, The company is also required to retain a third-party to perform environmental-related operational audits around the environmental health and safety management systems. So, for example, in a settlement related to environmental violations by a cruise ship operator, the company was required to retain a compliance monitor, but also a third-party auditor to verify the technical compliance of certain vessels with waste management laws.
4: Right. I mean, I think that it's important to sort of stress that the model on issues outside the environmental space can often look very similar. As Michelle said, the technical bits of the compliance program you look at may be different if you're looking at the anti-corruption program versus an environmental compliance program. But some of the broad brush pieces of the program will be the same the risk assessment process might be the same, the way you set up a whistleblowing hotline for people to raise issues or investigate those issues might be the same. And all of those could either have been implicated in the initial problem that led to the monitorship or could just be part of the scope because it got negotiated into the scope of the monitors mandate as part of the agreement. And so a lot of the pieces could be very similar even if it's not environmental related. One key difference might be the involvement of technical experts, right? Michelle mentioned up front that each team is sort of put together differently based on who's needed, what expertise is needed, and obviously there's some very technical environmental issues that might be raised in a monitorship involving a violation of environmental law that might not come in if we're talking about, you know, securities law.
1: So there's just clearly a lot to unpack there and to support over time. And that raises the question, how long do these monitorships last, or how long can they last? Yeah, I mean, the most
4: typical DOJ term, I think, is three years. That's what we've seen most often. They can be shorter or they can be you know, stopped mid-run if the government and the monitor determine that the company has done what it needs to do and it doesn't need to wait an extra year. On the other side, there are instances where the company hasn't remediated as much of the program as fast as it needed to and that term is extended. So there's some flexibility
1: there, but three years is typically the standard. So yeah, you show up at work one day, your company has a monitor. How do you interface with the monitor? And I guess more specifically, Brad, Michelle, who is typically the point of contact within a company for a monitor? Is it the CCO, the general counsel, someone else?
4: Yeah, I mean, it can vary a lot, I think. If the monitorship itself is fairly narrow in scope, they're focused on a fairly narrow piece of the compliance program. I think oftentimes it's reasonable for the GC or the chief compliance officer or someone on their team to take primary control. Michelle described a process that we've seen be pretty effective in larger scoped monitorships where project management office inside the company is set up to help interface with the monitor. Ultimately, the monitor needs access to everyone in the company that has a role to play inside the appliance program, but it's really helpful to have a key contact, and that key contact can be from the GC's office or the compliance department, but also, again, you know, sometimes a, a dedicated office is set up or a project management office to deal with the monitor and their team.
1: You want to add anything, Michelle?
3: Nope, I agree with everything Brad said.
1: First time for everything. All righty. Ike, turning to you, let's turn to the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco's September fifteenth, twenty 2022 discussion of monitors. What did the DAG Monaco say and why is it significant?
2: Sure, I think there's several noteworthy aspects of this. One is back in October of 2021, the Deputy Attorney General rescinded prior DOJ guidance To the extent that that guidance indicated that monitorships were disfavored or somehow the exception and not the rule in doj resolutions and so the september 15th memo from lisa monaco really cements that principle even further the memo indicates as department-wide policy that there's not hard and fast rules but states that whether or not a monitorship is imposed Depends on the specific facts and circumstances of a particular case. And to that end, I think another noteworthy aspect of it is that it lays down 10 different factors that the department is supposed to consider. These are non-exhaustive list of factors, but includes a variety of things. Did the company voluntarily self-report the misconduct? What is the corporation's compliance program like at the time of the resolution? Was the underlying criminal activity long-lasting? What steps did the company take to investigate? And what remedial measures did it implement? Questions like that that prosecutors are supposed to ask in assessing whether or not to impose a monitorship. In addition, one of the purposes of the memo was to promote consistency and transparency among DOJ components that employ monitorships I think the department has been criticized in the past that the monitorships are opaque, that there's not a lot of information about them, that there's often scope creep, that they're very expensive and cost more than what is projected at the outset. And so part of the purpose of the memo was to provide more transparency into how monitors are selected and how the department is going to oversee the monitorship and it includes things like looking at whether the monitorship is adhering to the scope, whether it's keeping on budget and aspects like that.
1: Turning back to Michelle and Brad, and I really hesitate to ask this question, but I'll ask it anyway. From your personal perspectives, are there best practices for dealing with a monitorship team? I mean, I know every case is different, but maybe there's some things that might work and maybe not work when you're dealing with a monitor team. So any of your thoughts are appreciated?
3: Yeah, there's definitely things that work well and some things that don't work so well. So a few of these concepts we touched upon before, you know, that concept of the right tone, embracing the monitor as an independent consultant versus having an adversarial relationship is key. Anticipating differences and interpretations of obligations and proactively discussing these at the beginning of the monitorship we find to be very helpful. Oftentimes, there's likely been a lot of time that's going into the negotiations that have gone on between the parties that led to the ultimate settlement agreement. And obligations are not always written in black and white and understood. So really having those differences of perspectives aired up front will save time on the back end. We already touched on developing PMO and processes to help the monitor maneuver throughout the organization. The other thing to think about is and what we've seen work well on several monitor ships is the company really providing the monitor with their perspective on key components of the compliance program, as well as the areas that need improvement. And so getting back to some of Brad's comments earlier, that transparency and that open dialogue between the company and the monitor team is going to help things get accomplished more quickly and timely than airing a view that's not supported with facts. In general, raising issues with the monitor proactively and early including other potential instances or allegations of misconduct or issues that may arise. Again, getting back to that term of the monitorship is let's say often three years. And so the department does not expect the company to be perfect or the compliance program to be perfect. So there will likely be other things that will go wrong and making sure that there are no surprises. The monitor's not surprised, the company's not surprised and the regulator's not surprised is key. And it also is key to helping the monitor assess when they need to provide a certification at the end of their mandate, whether these things may disrupt the ability of the monitor to do that. The other thing I think is really important is the company having a proactive dialogue about how the monitor can leverage internal company resources. This is gonna save the company a lot of time and money. If there's credible and quality resources like internal audit, for example, in-house, who know the company, the business, the operations that the monitor can rely upon. This is key to a more cost-effective monitorship, which is in everyone's best interest.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think two other things I would say is just don't wait to do the remediation. Don't wait until the monitor makes a recommendation or formally makes it in a report. Getting the ball rolling as soon as possible is important. Some of these things take a long time to change, right? Sometimes there's a culture change that has to happen in an organization, and that can't happen overnight. And the other thing is, although the monitorship may not have been the company's first choice as a way to resolve the issue, once it's in place, take advantage of it as an opportunity to really, truly improve the compliance program and help teach the employees the way to work in a culture of compliance use the monitorship as an opportunity to help move the company forward rather than just answer the questions you need to answer to get through the three-year term.
1: Thanks, Brad. And taking a step back from living under a monitor, Ike, what are some compliance steps so the companies can lower the risk of DOJ insisting or an agency insisting that there be a compliance monitor?
2: Sure. One of the things about the recent DOJ guidance, we see it in The Monaco memo from September, it's in some of the more recent memos. For example, the Criminal Division put out a memo on March 1st, Environmental Crimes and ENRD put one out in the last couple of days. And those memos really highlight the fact that if you come in and you self-report violations to the government, that that is a big factor that they consider in whether or not to impose a monitor. And so the decision on whether or not to self-report is obviously a tremendously complicated one, and it's a very difficult one for many companies, but this is another tangible benefit or possible tangible benefit that the government is now putting out there for companies that come in and self-report. So that's one aspect of it. I think a very important aspect of it, whether companies are doing this preemptively, if there's no investigation, or when an investigation has started is to make sure that they have an effective compliance program and they are taking steps to proactively improve their compliance program and a number of the factors in the Monaco memo and the more recent guidance from the criminal division and environmental crimes touch on this. But the Department of Justice looks at the state of the compliance program at the time of the resolution. And so one of the things that we often do is work with clients to make sure that the compliance program is meeting DOJ expectations and that they are making improvements, that it's based on a risk assessment, that the program is appropriately tailored to those risks, that the program is adequately staffed, there's the appropriate amount of resources, that they're getting support from the top levels of the organization, that there's a culture of compliance, which is a lot of hard work, but that they're instilling a culture of compliance in the organization and that the program has been tested. And so these are steps that you can begin to take, you being a company can take on day one of an investigation to start reducing the risk of a monitorship if there is a resolution. In addition, it's making sure that the company's investigating the issues that the, the DOJ is looking at and it's taking appropriate remedial action. So part of that remedial action gets back to the compliance program. Are there appropriate controls in place to prevent recurrence? But it also involves things like appropriately disciplining employees who were involved in misconduct, terminating relationships if there's a problem with some sort of third party, things like that.
3: Like I think one of the things that is really important in the company's process if they're under an investigation is really thinking about that root cause analysis and a comprehensive one, it's so important. It's often the roadmap then for remediation. And so making sure that the company is spending time assessing what we call all lines of defense. So the business, legal and compliances role, internal audits role in the monitoring and auditing processes that perhaps we're missing to timely detect the misconduct at hand and really making sure that the remediation efforts follow the root causes that led to the problems and then Brad touched upon before, you know, don't underestimate the cultural aspect of that root cause analysis and the length of time to remediate cultural issues.
1: Thanks, and sticking with you, Brad and Michelle, if DOJ insists on a monitor and a company agrees, how have you seen that process work in terms of identifying selector and monitor candidates? What are the key things to look for in the process? What does DOJ look for? How can companies better bridge the gap between their priorities and what the government may want in terms of a monitorship?
4: Sure, I mean, typically, you know, companies under the DOJ system have the ability to choose a sort of panel of three options for the DOJ to select from. When a company goes about that, they typically work through their outside counsel to find those candidates. And they're trying out, of course, to meet, find, monitor candidates that meet the DOJ's expectations, that the monitor can be objective and independent, that they have the right qualifications and expertise, and that they'll have the right resources at hand to do the job. I think it's in the company's interest to also think about some of the things we talked about earlier around how well do you think you can work with the monitor on developing the work plan and in working through issues as they come up, because ultimately, this is a long-term relationship and you don't want it to be adversarial. And so making sure that there's some common understanding upfront about how the process can work well, I think is to the company's advantage. Michelle, anything to add there?
3: Well, I think there's other things that companies may wanna consider. So certainly companies want to look to see a candidate that has experience with overseeing a monitorship in the past, but they also may want to assess their, I'll call it, prior monitorship experience success rate. So how well have the other experiences for the other companies that have been under monitorships gone working with this particular monitor and his or her team? Prior experience working with the relevant regulator is important, cultural experience and fit, cost of course, geography, and then diversity and experience of the team.
1: Thanks, Michelle. And sticking with you, some folks have a perception that monitors are very expensive, and there's not really an effective way for companies under a monitorship to contain costs and engage in a constructive dialogue about costs versus benefits. So what's your advice, if any, there?
3: Yeah, I think we've touched on some of these concepts earlier. Again, having that project management office with responsibility for working with the monitor, keeping the monitor informed organizations exploring how the monitor can rely on company resources like internal audit. Oftentimes that's explicitly written into the monitor's mandate that they can coordinate and rely on these company resources and processes and work product to assist the monitor in carrying out their mandate. And so, you know, the monitor has got to have confidence in the quality of those resources. And at times, you know, companies have gotten into trouble because they haven't had the resources dedicated to compliance but there's plenty of global corporations that have an army of internal audit resources that in our experience are well qualified to help the monitor fulfill their mandate. And Brad touched upon before, you know, that work plan stage, really understanding the monitor's work plan, making sure that you've got folks at the company that are accountable and responsible for implementing the recommendations and have oversight over that progress is key. And just regularly communicating with the monitor any roadblocks to remediation. Companies are going to change over the course of the term of the monitor, right? The risk landscape is going to change. And so a recommendation that was made a few years ago may no longer make sense given changes that happen at the company. So just having that open dialogue when, say, a recommendation begins not to make sense and be practical or reasonable and having that early on, I think really, again, helps that no surprises concept that we talked about before.
1: Thanks. And Brad, what just generally, what can companies, in your view, do to make a monitorship successful?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think three things come to mind. One is to not think of the monitorship as punitive, but really, truly treat it as an opportunity to improve the compliance program. If there's a third party who has some expertise in this space, making recommendations, take advantage of those recommendations, try and make the program and the company better through that. Second, I would say focus on the end goal, right, that everyone's goal should be the same. The monitor, the company, the government all want the company's compliance program to be better. Everyone wants to avoid future violations of law. So keeping everyone focused on that as the ultimate goal, I think, is important. And lastly, we mentioned before, communicating openly and, and being transparent as possible is really important for this to be successful. You don't want the monitor to end up surprised on something that's going on. The monitor doesn't want the company to be surprised by something it's doing. Just keeping that line of dialogue open and making sure that you're thinking about the parties, not in an adversarial nature, but around that sort of shared goal at the end of the day. I think those three things really do help make sure that the monitorship is more successful than it would otherwise be.
1: Thanks, Brad. And Ike, any final thoughts to close us out on this topic of monitors in light of the dynamic and evolving DOJ guidance here?
2: Sure. Thanks, Justin. Let me offer a few. I think one of the first and foremost things companies should be thinking about is making sure that their compliance programs are meeting the DOJ guidance and regulatory expectations. There's a lot of different guidance documents out there to help companies understand what doj and other agencies view as essential components of a compliance program make sure that your program is adhering to those criteria i think that's first and foremost it's something any company can do it's definitely something a company that's involved in a government investigation can and must do in order to best position itself i think the guidance that we have seen come out in the last several months underscores that the monitorships may become more frequent in this administration as part of corporate resolutions and so having a compliance program at the time of the resolution that is effective that's tested etc is really going to best position companies and i think if you do have a monitorship brad and michelle hit on a number of this but what it comes down to is being prepared for the monitorship it is making sure that you have the organization and resources to handle the monitorship The monitor is going to come in and hit the ground running. You're often going to get, within the first day or so, a detailed document and information request from the monitor that's going to seek a bunch of information, and there's going to be an expectation that the company is going to move swiftly to accommodate those requests, because the monitor is also working under a timeline that's part of the work plan. And I think Brad hit it in his remarks a moment ago, is approaching this with the right mindset. It is going to be destined for failure if companies view this as an adversarial relationship. And it is going to be a painful three-year process. And so I think approaching this as an opportunity for the company to make improvements is going to help make sure the monitorship is successful.
1: Thanks, Ike. And thanks to Michelle and Brad from Turn. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.